As we mark this 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, it's been a deeply painful time for a lot of my friends who live in and around the New Orleans area and probably for a fair number of people in this room. It seemed at the time that everyone I knew was either evacuating, housing evacuees, working in shelters, working to set up new shelters, doing maybe all of the above. Here at the church, we were scrambling to expand a hurricane lodging list for housing UUs from our sister congregations, which I need to get another one of those started, actually. Um, our members then were taking in more of their relatives and friends than had ever been the case. And as we know now, it was not the hurricane that devastated the city of New Orleans. Indeed, residents both in residence and in exile at first breathed a sigh of relief that the city had dodged the worst of the storm's destruction. But then the levees broke, the waters rose, and the man-made disaster, the federal flood, stole the lives of more than 1,800 people, and whether permanently or temporarily, the homes, health, and livelihoods of many more. So 10 years later, into this mix of pain and memory comes Chicago Tribune columnist named Kristen McQuarrie, who blogs under the name Statehouse Chick. And she wrote a piece that begins, Envy isn't a rational response to the upcoming 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and she really should have quit right there. But she goes on. With August 29th fast approaching and New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu making the media rounds, I find myself wishing for a storm in Chicago, an unpredictable, haughty, devastating swirl of fury, a dramatic levee break, geysers bursting through manhole covers, a sleeping city forced onto the rooftops. That's what it took to hit the reset button in New Orleans. Chaos, tragedy, heartbreak. Describing the problems of decay and corruption that she sees as the impending death of her own city, she finishes with this gem. That's why I find myself praying for a storm. Okay, a figurative storm. Something that will prompt a rebirth in Chicago. I can relate metaphorically to those residents of New Orleans climbing onto their rooftops and begging for help and waving their arms and lurching toward the rescue helicopters. Seriously, you can. If McQuarrie wanted a devastating swirl of fury, she surely got it, though perhaps not exactly the one she was seeking. Our own Reverend Nathan Ryan, the assistant minister of the Unitarian Church of Baton Rouge, a native of New Orleans, and a graduate of Chicago's Meadville Lombard Theological School, so with warm and strong connections to both cities, wrote a response that was published in the Tribune, saying, in part, I would never, ever wish the trauma and heartbreak of Hurricane Katrina and the ensuing flood on your city. Some of the people I serve are so traumatized by Katrina they still can't or won't talk about it. Some of the people I serve lost family members in the flood. Although I didn't experience that level of suffering personally, Katrina's aftermath remains the defining disaster of my life. It's true that parts of New Orleans have been revitalized, but it didn't occur due to the preventable deaths by drowning and medical neglect of more than 1,800 of my people and the scattering of hundreds of thousands of our poorest residents. A similar tragedy in your wonderful city will not revitalize Chicago. Many in the Twitterverse turn more to dark humor. What this city needs most right now is for thousands of people to die, preferably the poor. Can we make that happen? You know, natural disaster, epidemic, whatever, let's brainstorm. 
another one. Actually, the Iraq War was good. It allowed the country to reset. Some were more somber. When I think of my dead uncle, I don't think of the problems of Chicago. He is dead. He didn't die for a cheap argument. And others pointed to the facts on the ground. Statehouse chick cheerleads for privatizing schools, but has she looked at the scandals facing those networks here, the kids that are shut out? McQuarrie's response column, What Was in My Heart, was the kind of condescending non-apology we hear all too often from public figures who make sweeping statements about whole groups of people and then are shocked, shocked when those people get angry. She wrote, I am horrified and sickened at how that column was read to mean I would be gunning for actual death and destruction. In other words, an apology that begins with, I'm sorry you, instead of, I'm sorry I. This episode was indicative of a larger phenomenon of which we may all be guilty from time to time, the failure to listen to another person's experience and to validate that person as the only true authority on that person's experience. I've seen it in the hoopla over Caitlyn Jenner, in responses to the Black Lives Matter movement, and in the attitudes expressed by some of our current presidential candidates toward women, immigrants, pretty much anyone who isn't a white, upper-middle-class, straight, cisgender male. One of the worst examples of this arrogant, seemingly purposeful ignorance had to come from former Arkansas governor and perennial presidential candidate Mike Huckabee, speaking to the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, first perpetuating the myth of children threatened by transgender people in bathrooms. It doesn't happen. He went on to say, now, I wish that someone had told me when I was in high school that I could have felt like a woman when it was time to take showers in P.E. My most charitable reading of that statement is that he has never once had a conversation with an actual trans person, or that he certainly didn't listen if he did. I have a hard time believing he could maintain that flippant attitude if he heard the stories of the medical and psychological hoop jumping to prove the need for transition, the ridiculously expensive hormones and their side effects, the surgeries, neither attainable nor medically appropriate for all who could benefit from them, and most likely not covered by insurance, the unpredictable reaction of family and friends, and the far likelier possibility of unemployment and even homelessness. Nobody wakes up and feels like doing that. And then there is the Black Lives Matter movement, a genuine distress call from African Americans, young and not so young, who have seen the manifestations of the new Jim Crow in their communities and are demanding change. Even understanding the, recent heart, the heartache of a recent senseless police deaths in our city and in our state, we can both honor and mourn the loss of decent, hardworking law enforcement officers and still acknowledge and seek to change the systemic racism of a system that has robbed much of an entire generation of young African-American males of meaningful livelihood and often of their very lives. So often these young men have only committed the kind of petty criminal acts that were considered formative experiences by many of us white folk who came of age in the 70s. And the people who try to generalize that movement to all lives matter don't seem to understand that even to be able to say that is a feature of white privilege. It would be wonderful if all lives really mattered. But everything about the current state of our system of justice says otherwise. The best illustration I know is a cartoon that maybe you've seen it online. There's a picture of two houses. 
one of the houses is on fire. And there's a little cartoon character with a fire hose putting water on the other house that isn't on fire and saying, all houses matter. That's, that's how that sounds. Some of my conservative friends consider my complaints indicative of the excessive political correctness of the current age. But I like the author Neil Gaiman's take on the subject. He suggests that wherever we see the words political correctness, we start substituting respect for other people. Respect for other people has just gotten way out of hand. Respect for other people is just everywhere you look nowadays. We always have to watch out that we're having respect for other people. If it's too many words or it's hard to remember, then I suggest an easy shortcut for PC, plain courtesy. So at some point in all of my grumbling about the state of the world and the fact that nobody tries to listen to the other person's stories or believe another person's experience, I realize I have to bust myself on that very thing. Whether it's Kristen McQuarrie or Mike Huckabee or the people who blurt out all lives matter, I need to try to see their humanity, to listen to their experience, to listen through to whatever fear or whatever emotion they may be experiencing. This is probably the best way for me to be a better ally to those targeted by these people because it has to be relentlessly exhausting for Katrina survivors, transgender people, African Americans, and all people who have constantly have to do the educating of people who want to explain to them their own experience. Maybe it's for those of us who want to be allies to summon within ourselves the capacity to listen deeply to these people's concerns and address them ourselves. And I have an idea about how to do that. Last week in teacher training, every year in teacher training, I bring up two books that I absolutely love about parenting. They're both by two women named Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish, and one is How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, and the other one is the sequel for teachers, which is called How to Talk So Kids Will Learn. And they offer strategies, communication strategies, that are great, not only for parenting, saved my motherly life any number of times, um, but they're valuable in all human interaction. They're based on this basic uh, idea that we can validate the feeling behind the words. We can listen to the feeling behind the words, even if we don't accept the behavior or the words themselves. Hateful speech or cluelessly oblivious speech is based in fear or ignorance or both. Being able to take a breath and remember that might go a long way toward helping change the hearts of those who speak that way. The writer Anne Lamott tells a story about Ram Dass, whose guru has told him he had to love everyone and that this was not negotiable because everyone you meet is God in drag. But these were the Reagan years, and Ram Dass found he couldn't quite get there with Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger. So finally, he put a photograph of Caspar Weinberger on his prayer table, along with everyone he revered. And when he sat down at his table to pray, he would pick up each photo and say with love and ecstasy, Good morning, Christ. Hello, Maharaja. Good morning, Mother Mary. Good morning, it's wonderful to see you, Buddha. And then he'd pick up the photo of Weinberger and say, starchily, hello, Casper. So who was your Casper Weinberger?
Not many of us will get the chance to speak personally to a Mike Huckabee or a Donald Trump, but you can start closer to home. Maybe with your homophobic grandma, your grumpy neighbor, your racist uncle. Two of the children's classes this morning will talk about the light inside of each of us, that spark of the divine in every person, that inherent worth and dignity as our first principle reminds us, and expressed by the Hindus as namaste, the God in me greets the God in you. Or, as the quote out front on the sign says, God nods to God from within each of us. When it is hardest to see God in there, we need to look and listen all the more deeply. Namaste.